Welcome to Resilience Rock Sales, your front row seat to rocking your sales game. I'm your host, Stacey Kopas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy of Resilience Inner Circle. For more information, head to academyofresilience.com.au. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Resilience Rock Sales. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Kirsty Nancaro. Welcome to the show, Kirsty. Thank you, Stacey. And just to, get, to kick us off, rather than read out your bio or anything like that, I'd love if you could share a bit about the Kirsty story with us. We're just one big in. I live in Cairns, beautiful, tropical farm of Queensland. And uh, as we've discussed, uh, we're both Westies. So you're currently a Westie. I'm up in Western Sydney. And my dream was always to become a journalist. So from nine years old, that's really what I wanted to do. And that was all sparked by conversation with my grandfather, who is my inspiration um, for all of my writing and, and my outlook on life and the way, I'm, what, way I am with people. I lost him when I was 10 and he was my last surviving grandparent. So it's a long time not to have had grandparents, but um, nevertheless, he's always stayed with me. And at that time when I was nine, he said uh, uh, something about me reminding him of Yana Vint who at the time was, you know, one of the flagship current affairs presenters. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do and be a journalist. And I was very fixated on that from that time. So everything I did in school and out of school was geared towards that goal. So I couldn't wait to get out of school and start my career, uh, enroll in university, but also work for cadet juice at the same time. And uh, I got a cadetship and I thought, well, that's the end game is being a journalist. So I, I went for the cadetship and I thought I'll just do the study later. I started on my local newspaper, the Blacktown Guardian, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, but it was an independent newspaper and a great training ground. Uh, did everything as an 18-year-old, did absolutely everything. I was the only one with a car, so I became the default photographer as well. Um, sometimes I was sub-editing the whole newspaper because the editor had spent far too long at pub at lunch. So <laughs> it was a really great training ground as a journalist. And then I went and worked in a political office and became a media advisor. So I got to learn the other side of um, how the media works from the comm side. And I've sort of switched between the two. But ultimately my goal was to work for the ABC and um, finish my master's degree, did 300 hours worth of work experience for the ABC and finally landed my first job in Alice Springs. So that's how I ended up in the centre of Australia, which I absolutely adore and I still feel like is my spiritual home. Uh, but eventually, enough Groundhog Day. I did, I did have two years in London in that intervening time. I had 10 years altogether in Alice, three years and then another seven when I returned from the UK. But there's only so many think desert races, camel carps, bangtail musters and murders that you can cover before you go. I need a bit of a change of scene. So... And in order to have some pr career progression and a bit of a refresh, came to Cairns for the uh, senior journalist job over here. And that's how we ended up in Cairns. But um, decided a few years ago that I'd had enough of um, being exposed to trauma on an almost daily basis. It did catch up with me and uh, started to feel like I should make some different choices. And I've always loved mentoring people and training. So I thought the natural progression was to start a media training business. 
And then that's evolved into a partnership with my very good friend, Susie Cray. And we now have emotion video training production and I do media training and we do video workshops, teaching people how to make, make videos on these things, which we all carry around. So that's a bunch of fun. So that's how I made my transition from journalist into businesswoman, And I'm very, very happy. And I love that with the mobile because that's what's been interesting. And we keep hearing now that everybody is a journalist and everybody is a media organization now, aren't they? When they've got that um, access to that. And also not just the access to capture, but the access to distribute instantly on the spot. So what difference do you, have, have you seen that's made, I guess, to the roles of traditional journalists? Look, it's changed. It's completely changed the model, uh, notwithstanding all of the competition from these, you know, citizen journalists that we have now. Um, the actual craft itself, when I joined the ABC in 1999, uh, it was as a radio reporter. We went out and recorded interviews on a device, which also changed three times while I was there, the technology. And we'd come back and we'd edit it up uh, and put the, uh, had the when I first moved there, the, we had the cart stack still, the tape within the cart stack. So I'd come back, um, edit my news probes, put them on a cart stack, and I'd literally carry a stack into the, the news booth. And as I'm reading the news, I'm putting the next one in and taking one out. So that's where I started with journalism. And then by the time I finished up with the ABC in 2017, we were doing radio, television, online, that's just reporting. Then they added social media. So it got to the point where we were doing things like live tweeting court cases. Uh, and then they gave us a camera as well. They, a lot of the regional bureaus don't have permanent camera staff. And so they thought, let's train the journos how to use cameras so that they can do the occasional pickup of an interview for somebody in Canberra. Well, it soon morphed into doing your own TV packages, which I absolutely loved. Um, I loved the creativity of not just thinking about the, the news gathering, but actually the uh, gathering of the vision and the audio as well. So, uh, yeah, by the time I finished, it was a vastly different job uh, and video was very much part of it. So now you'll see a lot of the newspaper sites, they have video because that's where the eyes are going. That's how they kept getting people in. So even the the traditional newspaper journalist is now having to train up in how to take video on their phone so that they can give their audience a little bit of a, a visual as well as waiting for their printed story to come out. Yeah, so it sounds like the timing was um, a good one then for you to to make the leap um, because, you know, around that time, I guess that's when you know, the rise of the video content, especially the short form video content, that's been super popular. And it's interesting where we're thinking about the audience for this podcast and the majority of the people listening to this podcast are, are likely to be in a sales role. Where do you feel that video content and those sort of things can be beneficial for someone in a sales role these days? It is so beneficial. A lot of our workshop clients are people in small business and even micro business, but also larger businesses. Because video production is expensive, right? You know, the, the going rate is about $1,000 per edited minute of professionally produced video. We do that ourselves, but again, the model is changing. And because we have this great technology that everybody has, the cameras improve every time the phones come out. Um, there's no need anymore to, sorry, but there's no need anymore to have like thousands and thousands of dollars of camera equipment or 
wait till you've got a budget to to get professionally um, made videos. Yes, there'll always be a place for that, but in terms of uh, daily connection with your customers, we can't always have a video production crew on hand to feed that content to our audiences. We're all very visual. We're all very time poor now, and like to see a quick video about something is is largely going to um, convert people in a way that uh, perhaps a brochure popped in the mailbox or uh, even an ad on TV is not going to. Uh, people are seeking out that content. They want to be engaged. They don't want to be sold to. They want to get to know you. And this is what we say to uh, some of our small business owners who are reluctant. They're like, oh, I don't want to go on camera. I'm really afraid. I look bad. I sound bad. I'm like, you are your business and you are your point of difference. So if your clients see you, they get to know you. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, you could be in a um, therapeutic role, you could be in real estate. If people feel like they know you, they're more likely to want to buy from you. Um, you've established what your values are, um, your reputation, all of those things that if you're just authentically you on a video, you seem to connect with people a lot more. Like we've tried it ourselves with content. Anytime we post something with one of our faces, even though we're, you know, we're a little bit embarrassed to do it as well, does so much better than seeing any other sort of content. So uh, from a sales point of view, it's an invaluable tool. I think I, I've had to go to look at the, the statistics, but I, the last time I checked it was about 89% of people actually want to watch a video before they buy a product. Now we're all into kind of trying before we buy and doing our research, whether it's booking a holiday or a restaurant or um, where to get our hardware supplies from. Often we'll go looking for a bit of a video review or some kind of testimonial to confirm that that's the decision that we want to make and that's where we want to spend our money. So, yeah, cannot. Stress enough that if you're not doing video in your business, you really need to be. I like that you said people are wanting to do their research and things like that online. And uh, and I can't remember this statistic either, but it's the majority of people um, don't actually want to engage with a salesperson anymore. So from what you've shared there, it's it's a way to as a salesperson, still have some involvement and some influence in the process without sort of feeling like they're needing to directly call somebody or do something like that. And also the benefit of video is so great because again, as you pop it up there and it's, it's leveraged as well, isn't it? It's like, you're not having to then do the same thing over and over again. It's like, if you're thinking about, well, what are the commonly asked questions that they're getting? And you might as well pop that up there because if you've been asked that question, you know, 10 times, then anybody that's at that point, any point in their buying journey is likely to have a question, that question or something like it. So starting to have those kind of things and looking at ways that you can use video to do that. It's almost like the heavy lifting, but it's also making the buyer more comfortable because they're not wanting that engagement as much as they have in the past. So it's, um, it's good. I think it sounds like there's, there's lots of opportunity and as you said, it's never been easier with really basic equipment, really, to be able That's to right. produce something really high quality, especially with the help of somebody like yourself. And, and to be honest, like we're judging content a lot less than we did for the quality as well, because we've got such short attention spans. 
That's why platforms like TikTok and Reels have, have boomed because we want to get a quick fix. We've got a couple of minutes somewhere. Um, some of us are more addicted to it than others, but it's just, if you can get in front of eyeballs that way, you can have your beautiful polished piece of content. But uh, honestly, if you can share something that's a little bit of an insight into your day or um, any products that you might have or a bit of a call to action or whatever it is, uh, making someone laugh, like that content does really well. So it doesn't, you don't have to sit there and agonize about scripting and that sort of thing. If you just have like a spontaneous moment that made you laugh or um, a thought that you wanted to share, then it's easy enough to just pick something off your camera roll and put a bit of text over it and share it in five minutes. And you'll be amazed what kind of audience engagement you have. It might not be people commenting, but people will be looking. Yeah. I think also too, as far as quality goes, because the majority of people are looking at things on their phones. So it is that small screen as opposed to on a huge monitor. Watching things on the smaller screen is a lot more forgiving than on the bigger screen as well. So I think it's just encouraging people just to test the waters really, isn't it? And just put some stuff out there. And I guess when we're thinking about that, there's that resilience piece too, because yeah, there is always a risk if you put yourself out there that you might get you might get somebody that has a negative comment. You might get the professional trolls that decide that you're the person to unleash on today. But, you know, those people are never going to be your buyers anyway, are they? They're not. And honestly, I, I haven't found too much go wrong with, with being vulnerable and putting myself out there. Like, not afraid to laugh at myself or be the first one to poke fun at myself. I'm, I'm the more serious of partnership. My business partner's a lot more fun and entertaining. Um, and brings a lot more personality across in her videos, but um, very happy to share about my journey and all of that kind of stuff. Because I think, well, exactly as you said, if you if you weren't ever going to be my customer, then you weren't ever going to be my customer. So it's I'd rather just be authentic, and you either like what I do and who I am, or you, or you don't, and you'll go somewhere else. So it's kind of refreshing to think that way rather than trying to. I get everything and, and all of that. There's more, more than enough work for everybody, really. So it's something you can sort of take that pressure off yourself. And, yeah, it is a bit vulnerable putting your, yourself out there, a bit like having your phone number or, or your email address out there on Google. It can go wrong. For some people, it's, it's not great. But, I mean, I, I have not found that myself as a business owner. I, I tend to only get calls that are legitimate and if I don't then we will have ways of dealing with those yeah I know that's in the grand scheme of things if it's going to be like a fraction of one percent that that's going to happen then you know really it's worth taking the chance and you mentioned there about being the more serious one a little bit about your journey I'd just like to go back something that you you shared when you were just sharing a bit about your story in the beginning you shared that being on sort of frontline journalism there was that exposure to trauma on a, on a continuous basis. Can you share a little bit more about what that was like on a day-to-day basis and the impact that it had on you? Yeah, it had a massive impact and I wouldn't be on the path that I am now. I wouldn't have this business journey if I hadn't been through what I had. And yeah, we, we tend to think about police, ambulance, fires, those first responders and their exposure to trauma. And obviously they do have that more regularly. 
But as a journalist, you're often there pretty soon after something's happened to bear witness. And when you do that for a long time, when I went to university, there was no training about how to manage with coping with withdrawal or processing things and, and whatnot. I mean, when I became a journalist, the the day therapy was going to the the pub. The, I remember being asked when I was being offered my, my journalism job, just having turned 18, and uh, the last question before I was given the job was, um, how old are you? And I'm like, what the hell does this have to do with anything? And I said, 18, why? And he said, oh, because we're actually going to the pub every day and meet up with the journos and the photographers from the other papers and play pool. And that's where everything gets process you know that's how people dealt with I suppose the stresses of the job at the time and um, there's a big drinking culture around journalism so that was my kind of introduction to how we how we cope with what we do um, and not necessarily the healthiest way and you know even though the ABC has an EAP program and the peer support program on a daily basis you're you know you can't be ringing somebody up every day and talking about, oh, I've just done this thing. And it's part of the job. So I guess year, year after year of vicarious trauma caught up with me. And I started thinking about, um, I just turned 40 and there was this opportunity to, to go for a chief of staff role, which was a new role in the office and restructured how they did things. And I was like, I'm going to go for this because it's going to get me out of the newsroom, which I think is not good for me anymore. Unfortunately, I think I was too far down the path by then. I got the job. And, but then I had all this extra responsibility and uh, I was responsible for 12 people, disaster management, producing the breakfast and morning programs, uh, managing all of the personalities in the office and keeping bosses happy with things that the staff did not want to do, which I didn't agree with either. So you just meet in the sandwich and you're on 24 seven because things happen, you know, already being on call a lot in the newsroom, but as the as the boss of the bureau, you're, you're definitely on all of the time. So I didn't sleep for five months, probably. I probably had a couple of hours sleep a night for that whole period and um, it eats away at you. So I became a zombie and started getting some help. And eventually um, I was referred to the GP, you know, with the, the unwritten message, I think you should go on antidepressants. And I was diagnosed with depression, tried the antidepressants, had all of the side effects, the horrible side effects that you can get with antidepressants, um, was literally clinging on for life and really not wanting to, and just had to, yeah, basically had to stop. I, I remember looking at my computer screen one morning and not, not actually knowing how to turn it on. That's how dead I was inside. That's the only way I can describe it. I was like, I'm not used to, I'm not used to anybody right now. So yeah, I, I stopped uh, the doctor suggested I had some time off. So ended up having seven months off, um, and trying to get better and just sleeping a lot in the first month or so. Um, and it wasn't until actually I left the ABC that I finally had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I knew about the depression and I was treating the depression medication and all of the things that I thought would help, which did, you know, being in nature and sleeping and all of that. But yeah, it wasn't until um, much later that I was diagnosed with PTSD. So I've actually been through a, a long process of EMDR treatment, eye movement 
desensitization and reprogramming where you we actually go back and visit, revisit those traumatic memories. And it was two, it was two kind of pathless stories that really were the, the nail in the coffin for me. One was the, um, the deaths of the eight children here just before Christmas in 2014. Um, something no one was expected. I just did my police rounds at lunchtime and had a good relationship with the cops and, you know, this very kind of stoic man Sergeant said to me, oh, we're, we're at an incident and um, we've got multiple child deaths. And I just assumed it was a car accident. Horrific as that would have been, but it was far worse than that. Um, as it turns out, they'd all been murdered. Um, so having to deal with that and play out from that in a community and in a community like Cairns, you're connected with each other. So you can't help but feel that whole pain of the community as well. Uh, and then about six months later, I ended up being the first camera woman I'd seen at the Ravenstow Cafe Explosion. This beautiful little town on the Tablelands. Uh, I'd been up there doing a different story and uh, I got the phone call, can you head there now? We don't know what's happened, but there's something going on. And then I arrived to the sea of ambulances and lots of white sheets up and people running around with bottles of water and people, you know, in various states, states of being burnt um, from an explosion car lost control and ran into the back of a, a cafe, hit two gas bottles and two women ultimately died, someone that worked in the cafe and, and one of the, the customers. And I just remember on that day, like I was so, it was the most conflicting day of my journalism career. I, I knew I had a job to do, but every fibre of my being just wanted just to help, not to be there with a camera news gallery. Um, but I had to do it as respectfully as I could, um, knowing that there is a role for journalists to play in bearing witness and recording that kind of evidence as well. Uh, but it was really, really tough. And so I, my mental health really started to slide after that and started noticing some changes in myself. Not really, I'm a very social person and I didn't really want to be social and didn't really want to be around people and just lost a lot of the joy of my life. So yeah, it was, was noticeable over a period of time that I was, I was getting less well and then trying to help myself. Ultimately, the, the, the main thing I had to do was just to stop everything. That was the only hope that I had of survival at the time. And thankfully it worked. Uh, in the time that I had off, I ended up, I thought, what can I do? I felt like the only job that I would be having doing at that point was putting the little stickers on fruit. But I'd be <laughs> pretty mindless, but, you know, I'd be contributing. I'm sure they've got a machine for that. But um, that's all I could come up with in terms of my productive future. But I thought volunteering, is, it's uh, I've always been a community-minded person and done fundraising and that sort of thing. So I thought I can, I can volunteer. So there was a turtle rehab centre here in Cairns and with lots of yeah sick turtles and the job was to go and vacuum up their poo and kill prawns and feed them and you know look after them and I thought I can do that so I volunteered one day a week there and then ultimately went to Nepal and volunteered as a teacher for a month that's another another story but it's uh, I, I'd met a guy who ran a charity from Cairns Friends of Himalayan Children during the 2015 earthquake and became 
associated with the work that, that they were doing in Nepal, helping kids get access to education and particularly girls. So, um, yeah, I decided to go and volunteer in Scholars Village and teach journalism in the school. And it really just started me on a path of self-worth again and, and being able to just get up and there's no ego about anything. There's no expectations. You're getting up with the sun. You're having a limited existence, just like everyone else. And everyone is happy. So that was like excellent therapeutic. And, and, yeah. and ultimately came back and went, right, I feel really connected to this. I love teaching people. This is what I need to be doing. I need to be training people. That is the, the thing that I love most about my journalism job. I want to do it for real now. So beginning of 2017, I started going, right, let's make a business out of this. And that's how I started. So did you end up leaving, leaving the job that you were at at that time to take that seven months off? Or did you just take some time off with the intention to go back? Did you actually go back for a while? I'd love to hear what that process was like. Yeah, I did go back. So I was on a kind of contract when I was doing the chief of staff role. So as soon as I knew that I was not going to continue in that role, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to resign from that position. I still had my newsroom position to go back to, which I didn't really want to, but in the absence of um, a more suitable opportunity in the organisation, um, that's where I had to go back to. So, um, yeah, I essentially gave up my job uh, as a student staff and said, please put somebody else in there so you can look after the team. Unfortunately, it took them almost that seven months to find somebody. Uh, but, yeah, I had to go back into the newsroom and I, being the, the newsroom leader and then I was just kind of, one of the staff, because I was, I went back part-time on that, you know, you, you have all of the assessments, the independent assessments that they make you do. And, um, the recommendation was that I did initially two days a week. And, um, so I did that, but again, my, my spurs stay back, but it was like, they hadn't told anybody what I had been through. And first day back, I, I, the person who, um, had been a colleague who was kind of now in charge of the newsroom who I didn't have a great relationship with, um, had informed me a couple of days before that I'd be on the early shift and that, um, they'd be away for a story and that we had a new reporter. Um, so I was kind of coming back after seven months of not using the technology or any of that to then be on the shift where we have to produce two radio news bulletin pretty early in the morning and uh the, the day I came back there was a cold case murder that had been solved oh my gosh like so, right in the deep end yeah and so that was that was um yeah when you're in a regional newsroom you're not just covering the news for your own region if it's something significant like that then it's mm. it's statewide or national news so there's that expectation that you'll be feeding stories on that those things more regularly um, so that happened and the premier was in town and I was also asked to train the new journal who'd only been there for a few weeks on how to, how to do camera work. So this was all in my first morning. Oh my gosh, which that just sounds, it sounds, it sounds like it sounds unreal, doesn't it? When you think about that. And especially as you said, you've been, what you'd been through there. The newsroom in Brisbane, what I'd been through and there was no call from HR or anyone else to say, welcome back and how are you going and is there anything we can do to support you? There was none of that. Like it probably happened a couple of weeks afterwards, but like it was just like nothing is going to change with this job. So I'm glad that I'm only here two days a week. 
because I can feel like it's not good for me. I had a, an, a murder a couple, maybe a month or so after it started where, you know, I was the person on shift and I would have gone out there and I got to the, I got to the front door with all the gear packed up and I just like, I can't, cannot do this. So it was tough. My husband, about three months into being back, started getting me to repeat, I'm littering the ABC, I'm leaving the ABC. And, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed, but I mean, it was all I worked for. I really worked hard to get my career with the ABC and I was very proud to work for this organisation. I still think it's the best that we have uh, in terms of news gathering and quality. So I was very, it was very hard to detach from, from that as a, the thing that I'd always done and wanted to do. And, but the fact that it wasn't good for me anymore was sort of starting to take over a bit more and I wasn't brave enough to leave without another job to go, to go to. And I was only just starting to develop the kernels of the business at that point. So, um, I had this beautiful opportunity just come out of the blue. And I do believe that the universe provides when, when, um, either we're too stubborn or your stars align and there was a job going, uh, I was just about to go overseas. And there was a job going um, with Queensland Health to essentially tell good news stories. Our local health service had been in the weeds for a couple of years and I'd, I'd reported on that a lot. Um, and they thought, you know, they've had no capacity to tell good news stories. They've just been in this defensive mode. So they decided to bring somebody into the team who could kind of basically unearth all the good stories and tell them, especially with video. So that was um, perfect. That was perfect role to go into, and that was mine to get out of the ABC. So I had to go back to work full time at that point, and that was a bit tough. But um, I also felt really, really supported in that work environment. I was very honest about what I'd been through and my limitations, um, and I had a really good boss who was very on board with with that. And yeah, I ended up shining in that role, and it became much more than the positive stuff because. We had some staff changes and I ended up doing all parts of the role. And then I realized I could again. So I felt like a productive member of society and that I could still use all of my skills. And then my friend, who is an amazing editor and uh, videographer herself, we'd met at the ABC. Um, she had started her own video editing training business. And we started thinking, how can we put this together? Because Essentially, I've got the front end of the project with the, the scripting and the, the storytelling and the presenting, and she's got the, the camera work and the editing skills. And it's all, you know, let's just try doing a workshop and see if this is something people want. And nearly four years later, it's, uh, it's definitely something that people want. So, yeah. So, yes, I did go back and ultimately uh, decided for myself that it wasn't, wasn't for me. I still feel like. I get to do all of the things that I loved about my job. I still get to tell stories. I get to be creative, create, create things, um, but without that associated trauma. Because, yeah, you just didn't know from day to day what you were going to get. Like, and we had a real string of car accidents as well, really horrible things that happened. And also a lot of murders. I thought there's no way that Far North Queensland can top Central Australia for violent murders and guess what ouch they, they did and I had to sit so you know sit in that courtroom and you're just absorbing all of that uh, 
trauma from people and there's nothing, there's nothing good about it. Like, it's just, it's just horrible. It's, there's so much sadness there. So the, the take a message from this is that yes, journalists are people too, and we have feelings and while we have some strategies for staying okay, we're only human. So we are in many, in many respects, uh, like a lot of those front line workers. It's interesting because, yeah, I guess you wouldn't generally put journalists into that, but once you, once you really lay that out, it's, you know, and then sometimes where you're probably going to even be on scene before even some of the key emergency services get there as well. There's a lot to it. Um, so I can, I can appreciate how that would lead to uh, PTSD over time. And I guess it's even, it's more of a complex PTSD as well, isn't it? Because it is like, it's not one incident, it's this ongoing exposure mm. to these these stressful situations so um but I really like that you that you did that and obviously your husband being a very supportive person and it sounds like he was um he was a bit of a resilience rock for you um, absolutely could not have done it without him or my dog Billy uh or my stepson Leon who was living here at the time they were here for me in in huge space and my mum not who's not here but um, yeah, and a close group of friends as well. So one of the things that I share with people if they are going, because what, what happened was when I started sharing about what I was going through, um, a lot of people, like family members and friends that I hadn't heard from age, ages, they, they were sending me personal messages saying, I had no idea. And actually this has been my life for the last however long. And it was quite shocking to hear how many people in my own network were suffering in silence, uh, not reaching out to people for help and not getting any professional help, just kind of wallowing. And uh, it was almost like I'd given permission to talk about it. And I was like, how many others are there out there who are in this situation that are not talking about it, not getting help and just thinking this is their, this is the end, this is their life. This is what I've got to deal with. I thought it was the end for me but hang in, hung in there just enough and got the right support from my family and, um, and professionally to realize that it's just part of the journey and there's a, there's a, a new chapter that, to write and you can come back. Uh, I know you don't like the, the word come back, uh, but uh, it's, yeah, it, it, I do feel like I'm the best version of myself. I feel like I've got a ah, a second chance and I'm running with it because it's such a gift and I see that now. But I also have a lot more empathy for people who really feel like they're, they're in that desperate um, stage of life where they don't really think that there's much for them. Um, and yeah, I used to think as a journalist, uh, that it was a self, a selfish act to take your own life. Economics is a very difficult thing to talk about, uh, and very sensitive for people. Um, but yeah, and until you've been there yourself, you don't, you don't understand that there, that feels like there's no other option. So just talk to someone, whatever, it could be a stranger, it could be a professional, uh, could be your dog, but just talk to someone, offload on somebody and, uh, yeah, just trying to hang in there. It's worth it. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's it. It's one of those things that I always like the, this too shall pass. I think that nothing's permanent, but yeah, reaching out for help is, is definitely something that is, is needed. I was someone that didn't, I was terrible at it. But as you said, when, when you share, then it does almost give people permission. And I find that just by, you know, speaking, sharing, even posts and things like that, it's amazing then how many people then reach out, people you don't know that do reach out. So it's super important to have that support and making sure that you've got your cheerleaders around you, the people that do support and encourage you and, and minimizing your exposure to the people that are going to suck the life out of you, especially if you are, you know, if you are feeling down, the last thing you want to do is have somebody that wants to try and take you down further. Also, you mentioned about the comeback. Yeah, it's, it's more the bounce back. There's the one that I'm not a big fan of because it just implies you keep coming back to the same place. Whereas um, I actually like the comeback. It's one of those things that, um, especially when you've been in the lows, when you can then recover, build up and, and then, you know, become more resilient as a process being exposed to such challenges and you do. And in those ones, I think, and often you come back stronger. So that's, I mean, there's so many opportunities in doing these things and sometimes you can look back and go wow you know some of these 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 experiences are incredibly tough but if even one second was different then now it'd be different i think that's something that's always good to have a reflection on as well if people are having a tough time but i think one thing i'd just like to loop back to before we wrap up is that when when you did end up taking that time out and you were really experiencing those difficulties you were in a leadership role <laughs> at that point. What advice would you give to perhaps some of you know, our sales leaders that are listening? What advice would you give them if they find themselves in that situation? Like, what would you do differently now, knowing what you know? Cut myself some more slack, probably, because you put a lot of pressure on yourself when you're in a leadership role, and you you know you feel like you've got to be there for everybody else. You're the gatekeeper. You're the you're the support person for others, and that is a lot of pressure to put on yourself. So, um, delegate what you can. This was initially something that I was reluctant to do because I didn't want to put pressure on my colleagues. I don't thought this is better than it all falling in a hole and nothing happening and then everybody being inconvenient. So reaching out to others who can take some of that pressure off you from a delegation point of view is, is some advice I would give. And yeah, reaching out to a mentor. If, if there's no one sort of above you that you can talk to, then a mentor who's in a similar role in, in the same industry or a different industry or somebody that you've had some coaching from. I mean, these are good people to, to just bounce off and, and say, look, am I, am I crazy or, um, and, and hopefully they'll, they'll sort of give you some, some helpful advice or strategies about what to do as well. And it, the, the whole putting pressure on yourself, it, it's easier said than done to say, don't put pressure on yourself. We, we wouldn't be in leadership roles unless we kind of enjoyed that positive stress of, of taking on challenges and tackling them and getting good outcomes. So um, it is a hard one to, to sort of say, oh, just, just switch that off. But just remind yourself, surround yourself by positive, with positive people as well. I think that's a good one. Um, and I'm not saying surround yourself by sycophants who are just going to 
constantly give you praise because that's not what life is all about. Um, but you know, we've all got people in our lives that, that pump up our tires and they're just naturally beautiful people. And I think myself, I've been become more conscious of having those types of people, positive people in my life, rather than people that are likely to feed into any kind of negativity and you know, narrative that I've got going on myself as well. So yeah, surround yourself with positive people, delegate, and just give yourself a little bit of a break. Remind you, remind yourself of things that you are doing well and achieving. And as you say, this too shall pass. Sometimes it's, uh, I get, we, we have a, a good saying in our house, if we're having a really crap day, and we do, like I still have periods of being incredibly down. It was pretty flat this weekend, to be honest. Um, but we just say, it's just a day. You know, you're not having to write off a whole week or a whole month or a whole year uh, and feed into that negativity. It's just a day. So tomorrow's different. Something else will, will change. We might change it. Something else might happen. Um, but we, if we just kind of compartmentalize and go, right, that's, that's done. Tomorrow's a new opportunity. Let's, let's go in that in with fresh eyes and an open mind and, and things may just be different. Some good advice there. And, um, a lot of it parallels to the resilience stuff that I talk about as well. And, um, and there's those, the resilience rocks, those foundational things, the things that we use that actually build that build that strong, the strong foundation of resilience. There is one other aspect to the resilience rocks, and that is a musical twist. So the rock twist. So with that, I've actually got a playlist on Spotify called Resilience Rocks. And what that is filled with is music to actually shift your energy, shift your state. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm sure that given some of the things that you've done over the years, that you would have some music or a song in particular that you would play in order to do that for yourself to just to shift your energy. So what is your number one go-to song to do that for you, to get you pumped up and get the energy moving? It has to be Walking on Sunshine, Katrina and the Waves. Yeah. It, was the, it was the song that I first heard in a radio station on a school visit uh, to 2WS in Western Sydney, uh, when I, I think I was nine then as well. So no wonder all this kind of journalism stuff was going on. But yeah, I remember going to the radio station and the announcer was playing that song and it, like it's always stuck with me and it's my, yeah, it's my happy song. And as I say, it's a bit of a bit of an anthem uh, when you're having a bit of a, a low point and you just kind of, you can't help but feel good when you think about that song. Awesome. Well, I will consult the playlist if it's not already on there. I will add that there um, for you. So thank you so much for coming and sharing and sharing so much and so vulnerably about your experiences, um, you know, with, with, with dealing with some of these traumas and, and the challenges that came with that. And also just the great advice that you've shared, particularly for people in leadership roles um, that may be experiencing some similar challenges as well. So it's been awesome to have you share so openly. And if people would like to connect with you um, beyond the conversation today, where is the best place for them to do that? Probably on LinkedIn, I would say. So you find me, Kirsty Nankaru, on LinkedIn. If you'd like to connect with me uh, on the business side, it's Emotion Video uh, Training and Production. So Emotion Video AU on all of the platforms. If you'd like to reach out that way, 
And I also have a YouTube channel, which is Kirsty Nan Caro. Uh, and we have an emotion video one as well. So, I mean, all the places <laughs> and would love to hear from people, even if it's somebody who I don't know, I'm always happy to, to connect and have a chat uh, around resilience or anything else that you want to chat around. Amazing. So thanks again for joining us. And I encourage people to reach out and connect with Kirsty. And until the next episode, thank you so much for joining us today on Resilience Rock Sales. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us again this week on Resilience Rock Sales. Don't just listen though, take action. The best sales professionals are always learning. Head over to resiliencerocks.com now to go backstage and get the resources mentioned today to help rock your sales goals.